I also found out later on like that the higher ups weren't actually expecting the Great War to last the full four and, four and a half years and then even longer as it did. They kind of figured it would last be like would be a six month thing and we would learn a few things. When I think of ambitious historical educational video projects online, I think of the Great War. How did the idea of making a mega documentary following every day of the First World War came to be? And how did it survive the YouTube ad apocalypse? I am Alex, and this is Genesis. For every episode that I do, I usually start with the question of what, when you, when you meet someone new and someone asks about what you do for a living, what is your go-to answer? And for a lot of people that I've interviewed so far, uh, I imagine there's a lot more difficulty because a lot of them are individual creators, but with someone working in such a... a, a, a larger or easier, I guess, to explain project as you have, I imagine you must have some cleaner go-to answers to this question. Uh, yeah, uh, I am Flo. Uh, my full name is Florian Wittig, for those of you interested. And I would say I'm a, I run a production company. And that production company uh, produces serialized history documentaries. And then depending on who I'm talking to and how old they are and whether they are from Germany, for example, or some more tech uh, affine countries, then I also drop in that I have a YouTube channel. <laughs> so b before we uh, we figured out where this, this this whole adventure of a production company started, I want to know, were, were you born in Germany? Yeah, born and raised in Berlin. Technically uh, born in a country that doesn't exist anymore uh, since I'm from East Berlin. Ooh, do, do tell me more, please. Well, uh, you know, I, I was born in 87, so uh, I spent the last three, the first three years of my life uh, as a citizen of the GDR. I just, I was just reminded of that because my uh, vaccination passport, that's like a thing we have in Germany, uh, like where you protoc protocol all your vaccinations that still has like the, the uh, uh, coat of arms of the GDR on it. <laughs> really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to showing it uh, to whoever is going to give me the shot uh, in a few in a few weeks. <laughs> and, and the few times I have been to Berlin, that's one of the few things that I kind of that always shocks me about it that you have this vestige of the living past right there, and it's still always like within ear uh, shot and always being visible, remind you you that that wasn't that long ago. Yeah, absolutely. I assume you probably don't remember much of it, but you you must have had an interesting childhood as as you were growing up with all these massive changes around you. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't have any living memory of uh, the wall coming down or uh, things like that, but I do have, of course, uh, that's a it's a good experience that also helps me uh, in my work life. Is oftentimes we you know we put like definite dates and uh, periods uh, uh, onto certain historical errors and we say the gdr and or the german par uh, partition ended in 1989 or 1990 when you want to be precise but you know the aftermath and like the transition period is of course much murky like it's not that you know you flip a switch from one day to another and then it's it's just technically at one date you flip a switch and then it, it is unified Germany. <laughs> but the, the behavior of the people, the experience of the people that live there and everything, all that kind of stuff that you can you can still feel that even today. So and as an example, I went to I still experienced what you would call GDR style childcare. Like I went to a 24-7 kindergarten 
because my uh, my mother was uh, working in shifts in the ho- in hospital. So I even spent you know sometimes sleeping in the in the kindergarten when she had the night shift, and uh, my father was gone by then. So um, you know that's the kind of thing, for example, that's for West German children of that time is unthinkable. Like they don't have that anymore. They did. They didn't. They never had that. And nowadays, for children even in East Germany, it's unthinkable that uh, something like this uh, exists. Wow. As all of this was happening around you, I I wonder how at what point in your life was the did the internet start being a thing? Um, in Germany, you know, Germany Germany is a bit has a bit of a special relationship with the internet. Really, I had no idea. <laughs> Tell me more. I I I, th- I think a lot of people older than me still think it's a fate and it's going to be, go away fairly soon. But I. Got my first computer uh, in third grade, and I think we got an like 128 kilobyte modem. Ooh. I want to say when I was seventh grade, so around like when I was 12, and um, you know that, that with that speed you had back then, you could. You, I, I wasn't able to do much, and I, I didn't start on like things like online gaming. But when I was like ninth ninth grade or uh, things like that, then I started uh, do, yeah, playing browser games. That kind of uh, thing, and you know, uh, I had an IRC channel uh, where I hang out with the people I played with. That kind of thing. So I would say I'm an early adopter in that sense. At what point did you start consuming? Like, when did content became a thing in the internet? Because, like, I'm I'm 30, and I I grew up in South America, where we were always about three or four years behind mm. the curve of, on anything technological. Yeah, I think Germany is about two years behind usually what what happens in the US. So I'm kind of in the middle between you and like the super avant-garde uh, early adopter stuff, I would say. Right. So in that sense, I remember YouTube started to become a thing when I was like in late high school. And uh, so so I wonder uh, when media consumption through the internet started taking, be- becoming a thing in the lives of everyone, what, what part of what was going on in your life then? So I yeah I think there's there, there's two different uh, two different timelines here. So the first the first ones is when people started using Twitter and there was blogosphere and mm-hmm. when I did my bachelor's for example um, after after high school I already my bachelor degree is called online editor. So in that sense there was already it was already by the time I started my my career it was already established that you can have a career in something like online media and you know create content though by that time we we were still more talking about you know blogs uh, and that kind of thing. So YouTube on the other hand I would say in Germany started when yeah, around 2006, uh, and then it was mostly popular as something that, something that's also still pretty familiar nowadays. Uh, I I think is uh, using it as a music player at parties. <laughs> yeah. So so that's something I remember from yeah la- also late high school years. I wouldn't necessarily call that content. <laughs> the, I mean, it, it is, but you know, it's just okay. Either the newest music videos or some of the older stuff that we listen to. My first introduction to actually, you know, actual creators or that kind of thing that must be that must have been maybe the game trailers era. Wow. So two thousand, yeah, two two thousand six. Uh, but not on YouTube. I mean, they did they, they did some video content there, like video reviews and everything. But that wasn't on YouTube by then. Before we move a little bit forward with the YouTube, you, you dropped something interesting there that I uh, I want to know more about. You said you made your bachelor on like video editing, content editing. How do you call it? 
So in in Germany we have a, a there is a word I would just drop it in German here for in case you have any German speaking listeners it's called redakteur and it's always a bit difficult to translate in the technical sense it's someone like a newspaper newspaper editor like someone who writes articles but also someone who is involved in the entire process of like um, improving style and improving other people's uh, work and so forth. My bachelor degree was called online editor and that was basically I would call it a boot camp for you know anybody who wanted to start it in quote-unquote new media uh, in 2008 when I started this it involved WordPress, uh, basic HTML and CSS, uh, Photoshop, video editing, some journalism, communication theory, uh, marketing, some PR, database research, uh, like pick and choose a bit of everything. So a very broad kind of foundation that you then could later on, if you so choose, specialize in a certain aspect of. Okay, one interesting that that seems pretty ahead of the curve. But also, yeah, it was. Why did why did you decide to go for such a bachelor? I work uh, in two thousand eight. I did my first two internships uh, right after graduating high school. Um, or I'm not sure if it's high school or college. So some German equivalent of of these two. After graduating. Uh, and basically getting the kind of qualification that allows me to apply for university. I wasn't, I, I didn't want to go to university right away. What I did do is, uh, I did an internship at a, a small political NGO here in Berlin that was writing about uh, the dig- digitalization of politics. That was quite cool. And from there on, and then, um, I, got a gig uh, at Electronic Arts uh, here in Germany. Uh, They were uh, looking for community editors. Electronic Arts as in the game company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. (laughs) Uh, And I I, I worked as a... um, uh, they they were looking for uh, community editors uh, that would cover uh, games the games convention in 2008 i think that was the last one in leipzig and uh, then i got a foot in the door there and started and i did an internship in online uh, marketing kind of just i had no idea what online marketing was by then but it seemed interesting and it involved video games and that's that at least was something i knew something about so and then with these two internships i kind of figured hey this is something i like and i you know i was a digital native that was a word that or two words that were like thrown around pretty frequently by then and then i figured it seems like this if i want to do anything with media or with writing or uh, like film production or anything like that then i need to like i'm the generation that i i can't not work in the internet like that's uh, i think that (laughs) that was out of the question uh, by then that writing was on the wall and then I Googled around a bit and because of the internship, EA is based in Cologne uh, and that bachelor degree was offered in Cologne. And then I figured, I mean, I didn't like Cologne very much, but I figured, hey, well, I'm, I'm already here, so why not apply? And then it worked out. Wow. Okay. How, how did that internship go? How, how was it doing anything for EA or just working games media for a while? Uh, it was my first, um, I, I, I mean, it was pretty cool because some of you might remember that 2008 was the one golden year for EA where they experimented a lot. So uh, that was the the time period where they released Mirror's Edge and Dead Space and... Oh God, yeah. Yeah, I was trying to place it. That was a, yeah, that was a heck of a year. Yeah, and short shortly after uh, the first Mass Effect, uh, etc. 
So, so that was a pretty good, good time to be there. And I had amazing colleagues there. And, uh, basically, you know, I was given a computer and they said, like, any, any kind of thing you want to try out. Uh, you know, I taught myself Photoshop when I was working there. I did some video blogs for like one of their German, for the German developers that, uh, was working for them. And uh, they gave you, gave you all this kind of creative freedom within the team which was amazing but at the same time it's also like the, it also gave me the first taste of like corporate structures and that kind of thing so there, there was like several instances where for example the german marketing team wanted to do something but then it got shut down because the americans already had their own plans uh, in their headquarters uh, and you know whatever they said was kind of that was what goes and there was also like this cultural clash where basically like in germany when you have something to say uh, like negative feedback you just say it uh, and in the in the US, that's like a cultural faux pas of like the first degree to like like if you want to criticize someone, that's what I learned there is you always have to first uh, first of all you have to tell them how you appreciate that they tried uh, and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, you have to be very polite. About yeah, it. so so uh, it was pretty quick. Like we, I think we we wrote a few emails, which I think um, I I think they must have just gasped uh, after reading when, for example, they sent like a redesign for a website or anything. So in that sense. I learned a lot about like corporate structure already and that kind of thing. Yeah, so a great first experience, I would say. So what happened next? I am I'm curious to know how this is all going to connect with yeah. your YouTube related career. So when I I, I had a, man, a mandatory internship during my bachelor's uh, where I did a trainee program at a, one of the public broadcasters we have uh, in Germany, a regional one, uh, a bit like uh, kind of our, the German kind of BBC, uh, if you want, they have local branches as well. There was a, it was like kind of a, a deep dive training into camera handling, editing, coming up with stories, uh, kind of working for television, um, that kind of process. And uh, we had a class with a camera woman there uh, who worked a lot in like news, uh, so to speak. And she's, she told me at the end of the internship that I should think about uh, pursuing a career as a creative producer uh, because she figured that would be something that I'm good at, like uh, organizing, planning, but also like molding other people's ideas. Uh, into like something workable then i just typed into google creative producer master program all of the german film schools uh they don't they only take master students from their from within their own bachelor cohort uh, but the university of arts zurich in switzerland they had a, a master's program which was also open for applicants that didn't already do their their bachelor's program so I applied there and with a bit of luck, uh, I also got the position there. And then in 2012, I started my master's program in Zurich as a creative producer. So you can see it, it's slowly going into the video content direction here. When does this ever connect to YouTube? So I think in 2012 was when the, the very first, I think, very small steps of what you could call like uh, YouTube creators uh, taking their first steps in Germany. Right. And um, so our 2012, 2013, more or less. And so what I learned in my master's program was if you want to do anything in continental Europe when it comes to film production or documentary film production, like it's all publicly funded there. We, like continental Europe doesn't have a, a film industry in that sense. Like right. in, in, in the sense of that it's very hard to just make a living of the commercial success of your production. Most of it is um, like funded through public funding programs. 
like the media huh. the, like the media EU program and uh, so forth that has changed in the last 10 years uh, like pretty steadily like with more major productions and so forth but it's not it's not like in the in the US for example where you can just say okay I have a production company now and then people come to me and so I mean in the US it's also not that easy but theoretically there it's you can be much more industrious uh, and just say I'm a producer I don't care what I produce I I just do it for for customers right so and then I learned what a, the laborious process of applying for these funds uh, which is no joke and I think uh, kills several hectares of rainforest every year by the paperwork that you have to <laughs> that you have well, to do. German bureaucracy is yeah, yeah, legendary. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. And in 2013, I also started watching some of my my first YouTube creators. Not necessarily German ones, but I started watching Crash Course. Hi, I'm John Green, and this is Crash Course World History. Let's begin today with a question. And uh, PBS Idea, Idea Channel, Idea Hour, like one of the earlier PBS uh, formats, like yes, some yes. some uh, some edu con edu content that was uh, hip around the time. And particularly, I, of course, I particularly liked uh, Crash Course. Uh, world history in American history. Mm -hmm. Then I, I moved back to Berlin um, even before I graduated, uh, because living in Switzerland, as you might have heard, is uh, bloody expensive. So I moved back to Berlin, and then I got a call from a friend at some point. And she says, "Like, hey, a friend of mine, she's working for this uh, for this company that produces YouTube channels, and they want to do something about World War One. Wouldn't you be Ooh, interested in okay. that?" Uh, uh, because she knew I, w I was kind of a history buff uh, as well. And then I said. Yeah, sure. That sounds interesting. And then I applied, and then uh, the producer running the uh, what would become the Great War there, he was also from a film school in Germany, so he I, he kind of could appreciate my degrees and also rather wanted to have like actual like by that by that point in planning of the Great War, they already knew they wanted to like kind of uh, imitate the look, uh, from the look and feel to have something that goes in the direction of TV documentaries. So he wanted to have people with TV experience or at least with like some grasp of what a professional production looks like, like no jump cuts, um, that kind of thing. So because it was specifically aimed at also uh, older, older viewers. So and that's why he I think he picked me uh, with a fresh degree uh, for uh, community uh, production stuff and he also hired Tony who is now my co-founder who had you know he had done an apprenticeship as a at a, uh, at a TV uh, production company just outside of Berlin he really went through the trenches like uh, with uh, camera work at sports events and uh, producing telenovelas and all that kind of stuff so he had like the real the real hardcore learning experience in that regard from very classical media uh, upbringing so to speak interestingly enough one one thing that i hear often uh, through YouTube channels is this stark difference that most people see between producing online content as most of us do, just learning ourselves and, and doing things with the sort of YouTube language. But something that I, I had sort of made the connection, but it's interesting hearing sort of the confirmation through you, is that the Great War was born a lot through a more traditional approach at YouTube. Something that a lot of people will say isn't even compatible with the platform, but clearly this uh, this was uh, the thing that was happening. How long like did, did that work? Did approaching the project from a traditional media point of view manage to function or were, were there any corrections needed as, as the project evolved? And how long did it take for the project to start sort of gating uh, a, a, an audience that could sustain it. 
So I, I would say the traditional media uh, model in that sense is mostly with, with how we worked was mostly an aesthetic choice. Like they wanted to have this kind of look of a professional TV history documentary. For us as a team of uh, three to four people uh, in the beginning, uh, it meant, let's say for a YouTube channel that starts out, it's a very different situation because we had uh, like the company that I that employed me was a multi-channel network. So they invested a bit of money. They gave us a like a, a good editing suit and uh, had some contractual stuff when it comes to historical footage and all that kind of stuff already figured out. So in that sense, we were much more advanced right from the start than like I would say a YouTuber who just has, a, has an idea and then gets going. But at the same time, of course, that created simultaneously already a pressure of refinancing the thing. So, you know, it's of not course. something that was born out of like someone, someone's pastime and then exploded. And then this, all of a sudden they had to deal with living, uh, making a living out of it. We had to like kind of, we had like a, a cadence period of a few months. And then at some point, like someone, somebody said, Hey, yeah, sure. This thing, uh, actually should earn some money at some point. So, you know, there's advantages and disadvantages here. I, I think having that professional approach and this kind of vision for how it should look and feel like uh, was definitely helpful because uh, just as an example, I was hired two weeks before the first episode goes, uh, went live. We had to hit the ground running and already have like certain things had to be set in stone already and we were, weren't able to really debate them. Um, but at the same time, we already had like a pretty fo professional foundation by having like a producer uh, who had worked in TV before, an editor who worked in TV before me with also some experience for like some short films I had done at university. Um, so you didn't have to ha lay that kind of groundwork that then usually comes with any creator that comes first. But at the same time, it already like we, we skipped the one year or so period that you have where you can figure out uh, how to do this economically and everything. Like we had to make money pretty, pretty fast. The um, biggest problem that we had is that very early signs of the YouTube apocalypse uh, were already starting to show. So Oof. like the ad revenue wasn't very strong. And we kind of heard like mumblings at YouTube that, you know, they weren't too too thrilled of uh, like putting ads next to like content with uh, graphical violence. Um, so yeah, then, uh, we basically had like a half year period before we had to really start figuring things out. And then luckily Patreon came along and that's, uh, like we launched the Patreon and well, I think we were one of, one of the first, like, I think in the first year of Patreon's existence, we made the top 20 list of, uh, of the biggest creators there because it's, it seemed to stru have struck a nerve, uh, that people wanted to support an educational project. Yes. In fact, I, I remember when... Uh, first I heard of the Great War channel, it was in the context of people in Reddit talking about people who deserve to be supported in Patreon, like the stuff Patreon was made for. Like that that was the, the vibe that I continuously got from people talking about the channel. So it's interesting that it sort of became a poster child for what crowdfunding could do when there are limitations on what ad-supported content usually enables. Getting to that sort of milestone of, of being such a popular show in Patreon, um, one thing that surprised me a lot is that you had that, like this being a thing produced by such an organization had the need to start thinking about how to make it economically sustainable from the very start. Now, in my experience and the experience of a lot of people, it usually takes a, a fair amount of time for some channels to get a certain amount of momentum. It helps a lot when it's content that is evidently very well produced, uh, but even still, how how long did it take? Since, as you said, you started two weeks barely from the start of the first episode 
how long did it take for some YouTube momentum to happen and for an audience to start trickling in? Uh, you mentioned Reddit right now, and uh, that was honestly like we had the, uh, the we we had the Reddit front page embrace uh, a few times. First time in October 2014, uh, and then the next time in March 2015, I think. Um, and then it happened a few times uh, after that as well. And uh, I think I think October 2014 is still the day with our biggest one day subscriber growth uh, that we ever had. I think it was like 27,000 subscribers in a day or so by being on the front page of Reddit. Wow. Like I think either on our documentaries or on our history, I can't really remember. That, that's like kind of when the thing really got uh, got some good traction. But how did that happen? Did someone just discover the channel and posted it on Reddit? Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, I had looked at Reddit before, but especially, uh, you know, I, I'm going to say something very controversial here. I prefer the new Reddit design over the old one. Wow. Uh, the uh, the old Reddit design, basically, if you don't know what the platform is, the old Reddit design is just freaking, it's just scary and intangible and you don't know what's going on. <laughs> Yeah, no, as someone who has been on Reddit for like seven years, the only reason I keep using the old design is just because I'm used to it. But yeah. realistically, it's not very well designed. <laughs> At that day when uh, I had looked at Reddit before and I, the only thing I understood is, A, you, you're not allowed to use it for self-promotion uh, and that the community is very strict about that. Yep. And uh, then I, I also saw the design and, uh, and figured uh, and didn't know really what's going on. So then... At that day when we were on the front page, then I decided to make an account um, and dove into it. I'm still using Reddit and I love it. Uh, and I also hate it a bit. But, uh, you know, now I can understand it. But that was kind of the uh, the first big moment when I uh, when I engaged with it. And there was no uh, no outside pressure from us. Like the people, it was just shared by some uh, of our fans there. And then someone had, had already created a, a subreddit for us uh, and that kind of thing. So that, that all came completely organically. We, we were on uh, like traditional social media on Facebook and Twitter and that kind of thing. It's what I did for uh, community management. But Reddit was uh, not in the uh, equation. Amazing. Okay, so in, in that time in between uh, the channel exploding on Reddit and figuring out how uh, how to make it work in Patreon, what, what, what was the process, what was the, 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 the feel and the conversations that happened that actually led to getting into Patreon? Because I imagine there must have been a lot of stress for a couple of months or more uh, honestly yeah honestly the the only uh, stress factor uh, and the only reason why we got on patreon was desperation yeah exactly right like it, it must be really hard yeah uh, i like i mentioned earlier that ea used to be my first uh, like um experience with a big media corporation and like working at that mcn uh at MediaCraft, uh, that was the same experience all over again, because on the one hand, we had like complete independence, but at the same time, there were certain structures in place that, you know, like at some point they just said, okay, no more extra funding, no more things for that. We never had anybody there who like did Facebook advertising or that kind of stuff for us. And then when I brought up Patreon, they were like, the higher ups were extremely skeptical that they couldn't even, cons wouldn't even consider that somebody would pay for a free product. Right. So... Oof. And it, and I I just said like look uh, like the advertising revenue is not going anywhere. Uh, we also have a workload here that clearly needs at least three four people for full time if we want to keep the quality. So I think we just need to try it out. Otherwise, like the this thing is going under. And I also found out later on like uh, that the higher ups weren't 
actually expecting the Great War to last the full four four and a half years and then even longer as it did. They kind of figured it would last be like would be a six months thing and we would learn a few things, uh, but it wouldn't actually uh, be a success. So they were comfortable with the idea of it being a learning failure. You, if you, yeah, if you want to, uh, that's like the most optimistic. Uh, <laughs> way I can think about it. I mean, the the the, the thing is like German YouTube uh, went through its first like implosion at that point and they had their hands full with a whole lot of other stuff and like a, a military history channel didn't fit their portfolio anyway and certainly not an English one. I mean, we started in multiple languages, like in German and Polish as well. And like we were the only English language channel, the only history channel, the only military history channel, and the only channel that was financed then eventually through crowdfunding. So in a sense, we were always like the outlier which gave us a bit of freedom in terms of coming up with ideas and being like relatively um, independent. But uh, yeah, we always like we went through like five or so CEOs in, the, in that time. And we always had to Oof. like sit down for an hour to explain to explain that new person coming in. What What is it we actually do? and Why are we still here? Wow. So uh, you hear about Patreon, you launch a patron out of pure desperation and miraculously it works. And yeah. it's it it starts providing that very desperate funding, and against all the odds, the channel moves c continues on. What happened next? Um, I think the the next the the phase over the next few years is basically summarized by meeting the new CEOs, explaining them what we do, keep the Patreon growing, keep the channel growing, and then just kind of pushing through with it. Uh, and there were a few other decisions which were not quite popular with the team. For example, they said like we should, at some point where they said we need to improve the upload frequency to three videos a week. Oh, dear God. Uh, which we also, for, like we never miss a single upload date. I don't know how we did it, but uh, like that's why the Great War Channel is so intimidating when you land on there now. It's, it's like, I think from the 2014-2018 period, it's like 650 videos or so. Uh, you know, the hardcore history buffs are super happy with it because they can binge watch that for like months. Uh, but for like people who are only casually interested in the topic and a lot of these were our subscribers, it was not a very good thing in the long term because we completely overwhelmed them. But yeah, at the same, at the same time, we kind of like kept our heads down, produced the videos. We started experimenting with a few things like, uh, fan meetings. We worked together with museums, like with a tank museum, Bovington. They also have a pretty big YouTube channel. And we, you know, did some things like traveling to Dior, to World War One battlefields, filming some stuff there. And yeah, uh, kind of kept the channel afloat. I would say I don't. I don't think it ever turned a profit in the technical sense. Um, but yeah, we we survived. I think at some like when we started, the Berlin department of our company was like I don't know twenty twenty five people or so. And I think when uh, in two thousand eighteen, when we were done, we were the only people in Berlin left. Wow. So and and and, and, and as you can imagine, that kind of again like cemented my opinion of working in a big media company at that point. The channel lived on much longer than a lot of people expected. However, with the basic idea of what the project was at the time, which was following uh, following the war one day at a time, there had to be a known expiration date, which is, you know, at some point yeah. the war ends. Uh, so knowing that that will be reached before that happened, before... What, was there any plans already to continue on with the channel after that milestone was reached, or was what was what was the thoughts around that time? Yeah, we had started making some plans uh, bef uh, like before. I mean, you know, the writing was on the wall for four and a half years, so to speak. And it, this goes back to what something I said in the beginning about uh, periodization and 
like you can't just turn a switch and then everything is back to normal or back to or, or goes forward to the next period. Like uh, the armistice date in late 1918 wasn't like the end was the end of the of the war on the Western Front, but only in a sense of it stopped the fighting. It was only an armistice. It wasn't a peace treaty. It also didn't stop the fighting in a military sense in a lot of other parts, especially in Eastern Europe. So we kind of had already figured, okay, we need to do something for the aftermath. And a lot of these in stories are extremely interesting and also extremely important because there's a lot of misunderstandings when it comes to the peace treaties, particularly in Germany, the Treaty of Versailles. And, uh, you know, I, yeah, if, for example, you want to move uh, forward and jump to the next war, uh, you know, a lot of people would say, okay, yeah, let's, uh, let's skip the 20 years between World War I and World War II. But the time period in between is super important and super relevant uh, to understand like where World War II come, it came from. So it's in it, like for world history and for European history and also for me as a German in history, it's extremely important to know how all these things uh, that started in 1933 then came to be. And that's when we kind of decided, okay, we could probably continue the channel for that. And I think a lot of our audience would probably like that. Um, then we already had, uh, like the, we had the Patreon going uh, and everything and we figured, okay, maybe we can adjust the con the concept so that it makes sense. And then uh, I had talked. I had talked to a few people I got to know in the process, like uh, Philip from Kurzgesagt, and uh, like a few other YouTubers had like told told me about um, some examples where other creators had basically bought their creation that they had started uh, within the company that they had kind of found an agreement to kind of cut out their creation and go independent from there. I think that around that time that there was a channel for, for a museum, which was run by a employee of the museum, which then wasn't working for the museum anymore, but the museum agreed to give her the channel. I think that was kind of the example that I was given. Uh, I actually don't know which kind of channel it was. So then we talked to the right people at, uh, at MediaCraft and had luckily enough, there were some people at that point there who were very open to these kinds of ideas and also realized that the Great War doesn't really fit their portfolio in any sense. So that's when we came to an, an agreement that we would be able to um, continue the channel independently with our new production company, Real Time History, which I'm very thankful for. That's like, like the channel was close to a million subscribers by then. And that wasn't by any, by any means a thing they needed to do. How long has the channel been independent? Uh, since February 2019 now. So it's, it's still a, a pretty uh, recent development, all things considered. How, how has independence treated the channel? I, I would say pretty good because, for example, at some point uh, I was referred to a, a certain Dave Whiskers, uh, who you might know, uh, who, runs, <laughs> uh, who runs Standard. And he told me about Nebula and about all the people there. And it sounded like a pretty cool idea. So in that sense, it was very, it was very liberating to make these kind of like business decisions, but also more creative uh, decisions on our own terms. Like we could basically, I mean, we had the... And we didn't have any kind of overhead. Like there wouldn't be anybody who 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 could say like, "Hey, you also need to like all." We also take this kind this this amount of operations but uh, money out of your budget uh, or something. 
Uh, and at the same time, we also knew from the start, okay, we can't, like, as I said, the Great War never turned a profit, profit technically. I mean, maybe it was close at some point. Uh, so we kind of said, okay, we had, we have the Patreon budget. We need to assume that, um, since Indy, our original host had moved on by then, that a lot of people will move, uh, will move on from the channel. And with, uh, as I said, with the uh, three uploads a week, we already had uh, also had overwhelmed a big part of the, uh, of the subscriber base. We weren't getting the kind of views per video anymore. And kind of assumed the worst that the that there would be a decline in Patreon and a big decline in views at least immediately. So we kind of figure needed to come up with a concept that would be a historically sound and make sense uh, for this new time period uh, because the the time period after the armistice is very messy uh, to talk about and very complex. And then also f uh, kind of calculate with uh, less viewers and less budget. But at the same time, you know, we could, it was just like the, the two of us and then later three of us who could make these decisions. And it was very liberating to kind of just pull it off and do it. And like, I didn't have to do any presentations or any, like convince any like CEOs or anything about that. That I think that's a, that's the kind of feeling that uh, it's, it's like uh, driving a bicycle without the, you know, the extra wheels. <laughs> Fascinating. As the future looms on, as... And you have been already an independent channel for a number of years. What do you think is next for for how YouTube has changed a lot? Even sure, the apocalypse was one of the first signs that certain types of historical content, certain types of educational content, could be problematic to be sustained purely through YouTube. In some sense, it's still ir like irking us because there's still 240 videos from us that are demonetized because. After we uploaded them, YouTube decided because of the whole um, Jake Paul uh, fiasco. You know, they, yep. they have a they have a strict policy of not they're not allowed to show dead bodies. And we had a you know it's a channel about war, so we have a, f a frame in our old intro where you can see a few dead bodies. And because of that, they said like, yeah, it's demonetized now. Even though the rule was like established after these videos were uploaded, they retroactively flagged all videos, and they said there is no way around this. So. In that sense, I'm very cautious to completely rely on YouTube. I think it's still a great platform for reach and to build a community and that kind of things. But I'm very like I, you know, when you talk about independence, I think one of the key things for every creator nowadays is like you need to be sure that you own your content and that you have another outlet, at least somewhere, a backup plan than just relying on one of these platforms because they, they can change their rules any day if they want to. This year and 2020, YouTube got better in the sense of like this process about demonetization. Everything is more transparent now and we hadn't had any problems with newer videos anymore. Though at the same time, you could say, you know, we have a, a chilling effect because we don't, you know, I don't show dead bodies anymore. Like <laughs> there's, there's plenty of photos and video material with dead bodies because we talk about war and violence. And you could argue like from a like educational standpoint, it's very important that people understand that. But at the same time, like we don't show these bodies anymore because we can't. Yeah. And, um, you know, you know, who knows whatever like Jake Paul double, uh, does next that could affect us and has like the, the could have this kind of ripple effect. That's why we, for example, we cr started crowdfunding our documentaries, uh, 16 days in Berlin and Rhineland 45 to what were two documentaries specifically outside of YouTube. You can watch them on Nebula. Um, or like you get a link when you uh, back them on crowdfunding. But this is like World War II. So this is swastikas out of Hitler, like <laughs> the, hol the Holocaust, dead bodies, violence. It's like all these ingredients that the YouTube algorithm hates. So we 
made a conscious decision to say we want to be as free as possible in telling these stories, and that means they can't they can't be on YouTube. It's yeah. In fact, uh, when the entire fiasco started happening and such broad rules were established, the Great War was probably the perfect example of border cases where those rules will actually hurt the educational capacity sure, of the yeah. platform. But but yeah, but at the same time, YouTube doesn't need to care about us because like our channel has less views than any popular pop song video has nowadays. And exactly, our yeah. like our advertising income has always been quite low. Like our CPM is abysmal, you know. So these factors, like like I I I think history content and like complex historic content is for YouTube is an annoyance because it's it's like the edge case that disproves all of their rules and it's just an annoyance. It attracts in the worst case uh, a certain subset of fans who are like you know make the kind of comments that then need to be filtered out. Or, you know, are even like uh, against the law uh, in terms of like, you know, Germany Holocaust denial is against the law. That's like a kind of thing that they like they want educational content, but they only want like the cool educational content. <laughs> yep. Yep. No, I, I absolutely agree. When we were talking about Nebula early on, by we, I mean some of the creators who were part of it very early on. I kind of remember the, the, the Great War being an example that was put very often as to the, the issue with advertiser-controlled uh, platforms like YouTube. And all the things you have just mentioned are uh, excellent examples of that. So it made sense for the Great War to be a, a channel that joined a service like Nebula. What do you see in the future as, you know, Nebula has been... Uh, uh, beyond what we expected in terms of success and continues growing, what do you see the future as a creator for for Nebulam for this sort of independent streaming platform? So I think in the immediate future, what will continue is what they've said in a I think in a BBC interview or something like Nebula is a bit of an add-on to YouTube for uh, at at the moment because in terms of reach and like marketing opportunities monetization opportunities YouTube has still a lot of potential despite all the issues it still has so what we will do for our next project which by the time this episode goes up is not yet live but should be like a week afterwards or something right it should should launch in early or mid June for the next project what we what we will do is a we will pick we will go back to YouTube in a sense we will have a free version of a of a documentary of the documentary we're going to make on YouTube and an extended version that you know is a bit free, freer in what kind of content it can show in terms of like talking about violence but also about other topics that are not very popular on YouTube uh, in the historical sense for example art history or that kind of thing so we will have a free version of that documentary series on YouTube um, but for the people who are subscribed to Nebula and for the people who like support the documentary series financially, there will be an extended version which dives you know deeper, gives a bit of extra content, and where we don't have to worry about hey, can I you know show for example this painting of dead people or not? So I think and then we, this will be like a trial. It's, it will be a shorter conflict that we will cover, and it will be uh, something in the 19th century where a lot of the problematic quote-unquote uh, things that YouTube doesn't like when it comes to history are not present so much and then we will kind of evaluate how that goes like a is this something the community is fine with b is this something that we can pull off because so far we only have worked in 20th century conflicts and c 
like kind of see where where the market is at the moment uh, and how the community reacts to like a project like this after a while it will have a real time component again it will be like a week by week thing so you know in, in a sense it will go a bit back to the roots of what we've been doing but in a lot of other senses it will also we will also use it as a test bed to kind of adapt to youtube in 2021 which is very different from youtube in 2014 when we started well thank you for sharing all of this it has been a, a fascinating journey i i didn't know half of the history of the channel i'm glad we have you at nebula and i'm very much looking forward to what the future brings well thanks for having me and uh yeah see you on nebula or on youtube or wherever and if you viewers have any questions uh, you know just hit me up or, or hit us up on twitter or on facebook um, or check out our website realtimehistory.net wherever you want to ask us anything or check out any of our stuff uh, feel free to do so 